Tom. Thanks, music team. Appreciate you guys, everybody. Appreciate all the gifts that everyone brings to the church. I appreciate, I know sometimes he doesn't think so, but I appreciate the consistency that Jim brings to all things around here. That's helpful and appreciative, appreciated as well. Um, today, we are gonna, we're moving through Luke, following Jesus through Luke. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. You can flip your way there uh, if you have one of these things. Again, for the young people in the room, this is a paper-bound book. That's what we used to read. Um, you, they they uh, have free apps of many different variations on your different app stores if you'd like to use technology to flip to the Bible. Luke chapter 9, I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 27 in a minute. Um, <clears throat> so uh, while you flip there, I'm going to let you in. A little secret. It's, it's not a secret. It's not like a trick of the trade or anything, but it is the way I filter, well, when I'm, when I'm at my best, I should say, the way I try to filter everything that I do, everything that Jim does, everything the elders and the deacons here do um, through one very simple question. And it's this, it, how is this helping us play our role. Now, hang on. Let me explain what I mean by that. We'll come back. Theologians, smarter than me, have put it this way. This back here. Think of it like a five-act play, or or if you prefer, a movie, or a musical, a story, a book, if you want, whatever kind of story you like to read, in five acts, right? Um, we got creation. Very good. Not just good, very good. Humanity, naked, unashamed, made to create life and beauty and, and, and without hindrance, without thorns growing up in our, the fruit of our labors, right? Without having to till the fields and battle the rocks and the thorns. And, and without pain and childbirth, to fill and multiply on the earth and to subdue it without struggle. Very good. Of course, the fall, we know the story. The couple believes the lies, and, and everything comes broken, and pain enters in, and those watching go, oh, there's the climactic moment, right? And the redemption begins all the way back. Within the same chapter that we see the fall, God promises that one will crush the head of the serpent. We see the call of Abraham. We see the coming of, of Moses and David and, and ultimately Jesus and the, the resurrection, and that's Act 3, right? And then here we are in Act 4, playing our part in the story, playing our role, and we've read Act 5. We know what comes at the end, right? So here's the question, if you're watching the movie, right, if if Roger Ebert, I think probably one of the better known film critics that we have, is is watching the movie, he's watching you and I play our role in, in Act Five of uh, four, there is he going to say, "Well, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't flow with the story. I don't. I'm not following. Why are they doing that? Or is he going to go? That makes perfect sense. So everything I do, I try when I'm doing at my best. I am trying to filter it through that question: Is it helping us to live, to play our role, to speak our lines well in the act of the play that we're in?" in Act 4. 
And here's the problem. We don't have a script. Right? But once we know things, we know the main theme of the story. Once we know, you know, what's gone before. Once we know what's coming next. Once we understand the characters and, and the hero of the story, then it can begin to shape the way that we improvise our lines. Does that make sense? And what our text today does more than anything else is point us to the hero and help us to understand who that hero is and, I think, help us to live, to speak our lines in a way that's coherent and makes sense and makes the film critic go, oh yeah, of course, that's exactly the way it should go. Now, the question, and it's really fascinating what Luke does. If you've been reading Luke, and I, I know I'm only kind of highlighting, right? We're only picking a few big key passages. But if you've been following along in Luke, reading closely, right? Luke, now, just quick, quick survey. Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? Those are three of the four Gospels, we call them, the stories, the biographies of Jesus. And they all kind of tell a lot of the same details, but with a little bit different emphasis on stuff. A quick way to remember this, Matthew's written for the Jews, Mark is written for the Romans, Luke is written for the Greeks. I want to do Luke because I feel like we're closer to the Greeks than any of them. We've got to do a little less translation because we're more, we get it, right? But it's really cool, if you read along, you pay close attention, you can catch these hints, right? Luke is emphasizing something. Now for two chapters, he's been asking a question we, we read it last week, way back in chapter 8. We read this question. Jesus comes, he calms the winds and the waves, and the disciples are like, you know, their heart rate is coming back to normal because they just thought they were going to die, right? And, and, and then they say, who then is this? Who is this? And we're beginning to see Luke wanting us to ask that question, who, who is this? In fact, before, uh, right before what I'm going to read today, we, we meet a guy named Herod. Herod is uh, what we'd call a puppet dictator, right? He has no power. He's a subject of Rome. This is common. A colonial foreign power will come and take over, and they'll find somebody that, they, that will do their bidding but won't create too much conflict for the people, and so they'll put him on the throne, and people will feel like they're somewhat independent even though the king there is doing whatever Rome wants. That's Herod. He's a subject of Rome, and he's a puppet he does whatever they want, right? But he is Jewish. And so what Herod, Herod starts hearing about Jesus, and he asks in chapter 9, verse 9, John I beheaded, see Herod has already beheaded John, uh, John the Baptist, the guy who came before Jesus, and he says, John I beheaded, listen, but who is this? He's asking the question. It says he's perplexed. He's confused. He doesn't know who Jesus is. It it, it says he sought to see him. He has some questions he doesn't know the answers to. But he's asking, who is this? It's it's happened a few times. Luke keeps raising that question. Who is this? And so then we get to this passage where I think Luke has been building some anticipation for us. I'll start reading. I'm going to read verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist. 
Others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? There's some emphasis on that. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, and Matthew kind of makes it clear, or Mark, one of them, makes it clear that he turns, he's sort of talking to his disciples, and he calls the crowds to him. So that's Luke's emphasis when he says, he says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That would be Act 5. But I tell you truly, <coughs> there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let me pray quick. God, <coughs> would you help us to understand, to love, to, to be moved by your word? Help me to speak your word today, what you would have me say, and um, help us to hear things from your spirit, whether I speak them or not. It's in your name. Amen. Now, a few things I just want to kind of mention from this text that kind of help us get on the same page, right, about this passage that, that might raise some questions, or did for me anyway. Um, why is he telling them, don't tell anybody? Something Jesus does a lot of. Don't, okay, but don't tell anybody, right? And then he says you must suffer. Now, see, this Christ thing, we'll talk about that in a minute, but they, the, the Jewish people were expecting somebody to come anointed by God, right? A Messiah figure with a sword uh, and, 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 a, and a bow and a, and a horse to set up his throne to throw the Romans out and establish independence. They, they were anticipating a powerful ruler to come and set them free and, and help them pursue all of their rights and all of their freedoms. And yes, right, that's what they wanted. And if they find out the Christ has come, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go pick him up. They're going to carry him off to Jerusalem. They're going to put a sword in his hand, and they're going to say, go get him. Right? And Jesus says, no. They come for power. And come to take power. I came to be humiliated. I came to suffer. I can't be lifted up and, and sent off to Jerusalem or Washington, D.C. To, to make all things better. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to die. It's interesting. So that's why he tells them that. Why a cross? Um, this doesn't mean, like, we hear that, right? We think, um, we, we think that means, like, if you've seen Arrested Development, right, maybe he says, get one of those little T necklaces, right? A little cross, necklace. It's not what he means, take up a cross. Uh, it doesn't mean get a tattoo, right? That's not what he's talking about. These people who were listening to him speak that day would know very well what he meant. 
because they saw it all the time. Roman soldiers would show up in all their armor and their helmets and show up at your door and they would bang on your door and they would hand you a cross and they would point to a hill outside the village. That's what it looked like for somebody to take up their cross. They were humbled, they were humiliated, and they were walking to their death. The rest of their life, however short it might be, would consist of humiliation. So when Jesus said you got to take up your cross and follow me, he was talking about know that you're going to die and that the rest of your life is not about you anymore. That's what it means to take up your cross. Uh, and then he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, right? That's, that's the tension that Jesus is constantly battling, really, and I feel like we still do. You know, you can, you can pick up a sword, and you can go to Jerusalem, and you can sit on the throne. You're still going to die. What good is it if you lose yourself? And then this bit I just want to touch on because it's very confusing and people ask questions all the time where he says there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now that was, this was 2,000 years ago. These people are dead now. So what did he mean when he said that? There's a lot of answers, um, different answers that different people have. Some people, let's say, you know, a little bit later, um, just a few years down the line from here, the, the disciples will be gathered around, and, and we call it Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes in to them and to the room, and, and thousands are added to the church that day, and there's this huge movement of God. And some people say, that's what he's talking about. Some people say uh, about 40 years after this, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. The church would begin its march outward to the day, really, when it would overthrow the Roman Empire through humility and humiliation and sacrifice. And some people think, well, maybe that's what he's talking about. Others think, well, John did write, seeing Act 5 for us, right? He showed us the vision of the new city of coming down out of heaven and every tear being wiped away and us standing together around the table worshiping the Lamb of God. Maybe that's what he's talking about. I think all of these are valid answers. I'm not saying I like one of those better than another. Frankly, I like them all. The kingdom of God marching out to the world. Sometimes we get wrapped up and we think kingdom of God means heaven. It doesn't. It means what we're doing right now. It means seeing transformation in our community, in our life. They saw it. We see it. We see the kingdom of God. So just a few things there about this passage to kind of help us get on the same page. Now, what it's really about is this question, who is this? <laughs> that they've been asking now in Luke for two chapters who is this? Actually, a little longer than that. A few times we've seen that question, and this is what it's about, the answer to that. But there are different answers. It's really interesting. Herod, who it told us a little earlier, he doesn't know, but he's asking. He wants to know who is this. But it's interesting because in just a little while, a couple chapters, a few chapters ahead, I think it's chapter 23, he meets him. Finally, after a couple of years, he finally meets Jesus. And it's the day Jesus is murdered that he meets him. And it says, I think it's chapter 23, verse 8, yeah, he was hoping to see some kind of sign. Herod 
was longing to see Jesus so that he could do magic for him. He wanted to see him perform some kind of miracle. He wanted to see him fix stuff. He wanted to see him maybe provide something. I think sometimes we can ask the question, who is this? He's the one who gives me stuff. We can treat Jesus sometimes like a little genie in a bottle. Give me this. Make that better. Make that go away. Do this for me as if he exists solely for us. We, we can do this. It's one way we do that, I think. Another answer that comes from the crowd, John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet. Now, <clears throat> what that is about, they didn't have a belief in reincarnation the way we do. They didn't hear. That's not the way it would have been understood in the first century, the way some of us might think, like a reincarnated, not exactly. There was, what that means is the spirit of this person. You know, if you uh, get a big evangelist going to football stadiums uh, and, and preaching the gospel, people come pouring down the aisles, you're going to say it's the spirit of Billy Graham returning. You don't mean the actual spirit, right? You mean this is that. We see the same thing. Does that, does that make sense? You guys try to me. It's not that person. That's not what they meant. And the, the tone of the ministry, um, John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets, all had a tone, a same tone. The tone was stop doing that and start doing this. Repent. Turn from your idols in the culture. Turn away from these things and turn toward God. It was a, it was a, it was a spirit, really, in some ways, of behavior change. They wanted to see people acting like they, the people that they said they were. And we sometimes can come to Jesus as if he's purely about changing the way we act. Well, if you love Jesus, you better do this and not do that, Right? And Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, I don't know that he is less than either of those things, necessarily. I think he's more. Peter says, you're the Christ of God. Now, what did they hear in that phrase? The Christ of God. That's not a name. Sometimes we think of it as a name. So we say, Jesus Christ. Oh, it's his last name. It's not. It's a title. And I had to do a little research. Me, me and Brent have been watching Downton Abbey. And I had to do a little digging, right? Because we asked the question, if you've seen that, you know, right? Uh, they, they always refer to the, the head of the house as Lord Grantham, Lord and Lady Grantham. And their daughters are Crowleys. And I was like, well, wait a minute. If their name's Grantham, why are their daughters Crowleys? And I, had, I had to look it up. His name is Robert Crowley. His title is the Earl of Grantham. He's not, his last name is not Grantham. It's a title. Just like the Duke of Edinburgh, right? That's Prince Charles. Or, or the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. That's a title and a name. It's a title. And with all titles come power. Doesn't matter. Whatever the title is, there's a certain element of power associated with it. The Queen of England, right? Her, her power is probably diminished from what it was in the 1600s. She still has power to speak with her voice and change, sway opinion. There's deep power that comes with the title. So what is the power of the title Christ? The power to defeat enemies, which he's shown us in Luke. 
last chapter, he ran a demon into a pig's, sent it off a cliff. He defeats enemies. The power to restore human flourishing, not just in Act 5, but now. He's done it. He's healed people. He's healed paralytics. He's, he's healed hurting women. He's raised someone from the dead already into where we've read. He has restored. He has the power to restore human flourishing to what it's supposed to be. He has the power to forgive sin. He's done that. Perplexed everybody. Who is this that forgives sin? They asked. The Christ. He has the power to forgive sin. Now, here's the, here's the point. Here's the proposition. Here's what it is. If, and if you're going to write, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't, I'm not a big fan. If you don't take notes, that's okay. Don't, don't feel like you have to be writing down. But if you are writing things down, write this down. If Jesus is the Christ, then it must change how we live. It must change how we live out our role, how we play our parts in Act 4 of the grand drama. If Jesus is the Christ, it must alter how we play our part. Now, I know that's a proposition. That's a truth statement. And there may be some of us here who are like, yeah, but you just Jesus, Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Hold on now. i got some questions about that. And that's okay. If that's you, I understand that. That is, what I'm, that is what I'm saying. That is a claim to truth rooted in historical reality, okay? I understand why that might be challenging. And that's okay. But I just want to point out, right, maybe, maybe you're lean agnostic. Maybe you kind of accept what is actually taught in, and this will shock some of you, in some seminaries in America, that Jesus is a Christ, that Buddha is a Christ, Muhammad, Vishnu, these are all Christ's, right? And so if if that's you, just bear with me for a minute, because Jesus is worth pointing out here that he died because he said he was the Christ, the God in flesh, the one and only Son of the Father, right? That's why he died. Now, some of us have a tendency to be like, well, yeah, okay, he was a good teacher, but But hear this now, if I were to say to you, oh, I'm God in the flesh, I would hope you wouldn't leave and go, he's a pretty good teacher, but mm." I would hope you'd call the ambulance. He died, all he had to do was say, I'm just teaching guys some some things I think might be helpful. I'm, I'm not making any kind of claim to divinity. They'd have been like, okay, well, you can go home then. He died because of this claim. As C.S. Lewis put it, he won't accept any of his nonsense about being a good moral teacher. He's either who he said he was, he's a liar from the pit of hell, or he's a madman. Right? And there's actually, you know, if, if I were to say, I'm a, I, kill me and I'll rise again in three days, I would hope you'd call the ambulance. There's good historical evidence outside of the Bible that that's exactly what happened. That he said it, and then he did it. And if that's true, then it causes us to come and reevaluate, who is this? And then come and, you know, I mean, if, if you want to talk more, I'd love to have that conversation. We can have lunch, we can have dinner. But Jesus makes some sort of really exclusive claims to divinity 
that cause us to wrestle. Now, there's others of us here, I think, who are fully on board with that. Yeah, Jesus is the Christ. Absolutely. And uh, um, if we watch the reel-to-reel or the YouTube clips or the story videos, depending on how old you are, (laughs) of our story, as we've walked out Act 4, we got to look, kind of sometimes lean back and go, I'm not sure that flows. <laughs> I'm not sure my life is being played out in a way that looks like Jesus is the Christ. Right? Some of us believe it and we're just struggling every day. Like some of us, we can say, yeah, I've made some progress, but I know I struggle. And others of us are like, man... I open my eyes in the morning and I say, yes, I believe it, but I'm not sure. We struggle. And that's okay. If, you, if, you're, if you're thinking, I have never struggled to live my life consistent with the statement of truth that Jesus is the Christ, well, come see me because you're fooling yourself. We all do that. The question is, what does it look like for us then? How do we live our lives in a way consistent with the statement that Jesus is the Christ. Well, think about what we said the power of Christ, what Luke shows us. The power of Christ is to defeat our enemies and his. Who? Christ. The Christ. Jesus defeats our enemies, not us. Now, I think we have to ask the question... Who then are our enemies? That's a valid question. And I know it's funny, right? Because there's some of us here in this room who would, who, who maybe immediately think my enemies are the secular, liberal, you know, left, you call it, you know, what you want, right? That those who would destroy my way of life in the West, those who seek to impinge upon my freedoms, right? That would be my enemy. And there are others, and it is worth all of us remembering, there are others of us in the room who would say, those that we would call the alt-right, who would seek to throw me out of the country, those who would burn my home, my church, that's the people that are my enemy, right? It's beautiful that we're worshiping together. And I think there's truth in that both sides that's worth listening to. Some of us might say, my enemy is the, is the, the, the record industry or the, the entertainment industry out in Hollywood, you know, the, the corruption, and the, those are my enemies. I've got to keep those out of my house, right? I had different enemies out in the sort of cultural space. And, and what do we usually do when we have those enemies? How do we normally enter that? Sometimes we turn on caps lock and we start lashing out on social media. I'll show them. Sometimes we even lash out at each other because your enemy's not my enemy. And what's wrong with you? And don't you see, you need to have the same enemy I do. And we get real passionate about making sure everybody is against our enemy because it's up to us to defeat the enemy, right? No not our job. It's Roger Ebert watching you fight the enemy and going, wait a minute, you're not being a very good supporting actor. 
You're trying to take over the role of the hero. What if, instead of lashing out, instead of turning caps log on, we send a private message and say, it was really interesting what I saw you post. I'm not sure I understand. Want to have lunch? What if we find those in the room who maybe have the enemy on the way other side of the spectrum and we say, tell me more. I want to love you well. I want to know what it's like to, to be you in this environment. Tell me. What and what if our love for our enemies and for one another is the very way that the Christ begins to defeat those enemies? What if instead of distracting us and tearing us apart, those enemies drive us toward one another, drive us deeper into love? What if that's how those enemies get defeated? There's another enemy that I know exists and is far too prevalent and is frankly far more crushing that came to mind as I thought about this, and that is an enemy that exists in many of our stories because some of us have a person that we might call an abuser, someone who has done us deep harm, maybe even someone who's doing us harm right now. How do we defeat that enemy? How do we trust Jesus to defeat that enemy? Now, let me just say, uh, the first way that I think denial, just deny yourself, the first way we deny ourselves in a situation like that may very well be 911. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you know how painful reporting might be, how terrifying that might be. That might be a denial of self that will save you, right? This, I want this to be a safe place, so let me just say, if that's you right now, you can talk to me, you can talk to Jim, you can talk to an elder in this church, you will be safe. They will not. <laughs> uh, that's a, it's a hard one. Some of us, though, probably more of us who have that story, that's an old story, maybe it's not right now, but it still is an enemy that we want to see defeated. How do we do that? How do we trust Jesus in a situation like that to defeat our enemies? Now, there are two ways that I have seen that Jesus defeats that enemy. One is with deep repentance and pain and tears and weeping and prolific statements for years of, there's no way I can ever make up for that. With weeping and tears and snot, I mean, I'm talking deep repentance. That's one way that I have seen him bring defeat to enemies. The other that for me often, often, and just to be completely honest, is far more comforting is the knowledge that in that fifth act, the boot of the Christ is on the neck of that person. He will defeat our enemies. Now, let me, let me also say that that weeping and repentance and all that, a perfectly appropriate place for that to happen is in a jail cell, just in case. I, I, that needs to be said. Um, so I, it, but I know when I say these things, it doesn't just bring healing. I know that. But I think years sometimes of, 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 of believing that Jesus is the Christ, 
of denying self and being willing to say, this is my pain, this is my heartache, this is my shame, and, and hearing our community, those around us today, say, you're valuable, you are loved, you are worth something, I think can begin to heal us over time. And there is healing because Jesus, even now, not just in Act 5, wants to restore us, all of us, and bring healing and, and make us what we ought to be, all that we should have been and all that got broken. He is about restoring human flourishing right now in this act, in Act 4. He, the power of the Christ, is to restore human flourishing. Now, we hear that, right? <clears throat> and we have those around us, maybe loved ones, who we argue with, and we fight, and we battle because we just want to see them flourish. <laughs> I know. It's not my job. It's Jesus's. It's the power of the Christ. And that might involve denial. That might be deny yourself. You can't win. Right? Trust. That's, there's deep denial in that. You know, it's interesting too to me, the, the times I see people uh, who are trying to restore human flourishing, right? To, to bring the way it ought to be out in the world. Like, for instance, I've seen this. I've seen people passionately fighting about what Washington, D.C. has to say about marriage while their spouse languishes at home. I'm not sure we're getting that right. What if making Christ, Jesus, the Christ of God, the Lord of my marriage, is the most important thing? What if being what we say we're supposed to be is, is really what Jesus wants for us. What if starting here, right here, in me, is where human flourishing out there begins? Those of us that get all passionate about policy issues and, and orphans and fatherlessness, and every week we say there's an elementary school down the, down, down the hill here with the highest rate of fatherlessness in the city, I mean, four or five men, maybe, that go down and read to them. And yet we're passionate about social issues. <laughs> I gotta ask, if Roger Ebert is watching that, is he going, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is coherent to the story. I think you're trying to be the hero. Right? We all know that the good supporting actor gets the Oscar for taking the hero and saying, hey, everybody, look who the hero is. <laughs> right? The good supporting actor is not going to grab a gun and shoot the hero or rescue the hero for that matter. How often do Christians try to rescue Jesus? It's not our job. We flub our lines, don't we? We miss our cues. <laughs> Roger Ebert's like, wait a minute, you totally botched that line. I think if we're honest, we look at our lives and we would say we've all flubbed our lines every day. We miss our cues. We're off fighting with our caps locks on. We ought to be reading to elementary school students. 
we're off marching with picket signs. We ought to be at home loving our families. Be showing the world what a good marriage looks like, not trying to tell them what it is. Flub our lines, right? Which is why it's so beautiful. And I hope there are. I hope we're we're feeling that prick, right? Of yeah, I'm not so sure I play it every, well every day. Because that's the other power here that Christ shows us, the power to forgive sin. And I know some of us don't like that word. Because it's been used as a weapon against us in unhealthy and painful ways. That's just an honest statement. It has. Because it really, it's a, it's a, it comes from an old Hebrew word that just, I mean, best paraphrase is, flub our lines. We miss our cue. And the director has the power to forgive that, right? When the, when the announcement pops up, oh, go to Myrie, and we're watching that, and we're like, oh, wait, no, I didn't. You know, and we, we have that moment of, oh, no, and we have stage fright, and we realize we didn't do it right, and, and, we, and we're, all, we're all off, and, it, and Jesus says, take up your cross. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, you missed your cue. Yes, you flubbed your line. Go back. You, you tripped walking out on stage. That's okay. Get up and play your part. What if that is what taking up our cross really looks like? Instead of Instead of trying to read the parts well as a strong actor, what if the real beauty in the design of the play is that we say, help me, forgive me, I did it wrong, I didn't get it right, thank you. What if that's how we best point, as Jim said earlier, as, as, we give glory. We make God famous. He's the hero of the story. Do we make him more famous by saying, look at how great I am at acting my part? Or do we make him famous by saying, oh, I blew it again. Help me. And here's what I think. I think that is the exact point that we have to be at. I think the more we say, help me, and the more we hear him say, okay, the better we just naturally become at playing our lines. But our lines never become about us. Our lines are pointing to Him. And for us, what do they look like? They look like humility. They look like the humiliation of a Roman prisoner carrying his cross to his grave. That's what it looks like to play our part well. I think if Jesus is the Christ... And it will alter our lives. And I think the most fundamental way it will alter our lives is that we will live as people who know that they need forgiveness and that they have forgiveness. That's what it looks like to live out our role knowing that Jesus is the Christ. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you change us, that you restore us, that you forgive us, and that you defeat our enemies. Would you meet us today and help us as we live out the gospel, transformed, changing, um, help those around us to see that and give you the glory. It's in your name. Amen.